Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Project Space, 2 Kerr Street, Fitzroy, from 5.30pm. Friends of the Earth Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Three CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. Three CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is Three CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with George. Hello. And myself, Anya. It's the 9th of April. Mm, How is it April? Airy season. Oh. They're an okay bunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's currently 11 degrees Celsius outside. Chilly. Pretty cold. Mm. Um, we're officially done with summer because daylight savings ended. Yes. Yesterday. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's been really confusing me. I was starving yeah. yesterday at 11 o'clock and I'm like, why? Why yeah. am I so hungry? <laughs> and it's technically eight now, even though it's seven. Ah, so it's... Good, good for us. Good, we gained an hour, <laughs> I think. So, should we run through what's going on on today's show? Yeah. Firstly, we have Chris Woods, um, Crikey's Morning Reporter and a freelance science, political and immigration journalist who will be joining us in a couple of minutes to go through some news headlines. Um, Chris good. was sick last week, so we're very happy to have them back on air. Awesome. And then after that, we'll be talking to Georgia Matthews, who's the executive director of the channel. And I'm really excited about this interview because they're doing a lot of, um, the channel does a lot of work around LGBTIQA plus um, funding and working out where funding is actually going. And they've Mm. done some, they've sort of collected some data which shows that virtually very, very little funding actually goes to LGBTIQA plus organisations from the government. So in comparison to other issues and other groups of people, Mm. which is really kind of important information to know. And it's also the work that the channel does is around getting queers that have a lot of privilege to support other queers. If you have the financial means to Mm. do so, you can become, I guess she'll she'll explain it more, but I think you become a member and then you can put money to go towards other other people that don't have that those, you know, that need Mm. that money maybe. So that's kind of So instead of reinventing the wheel, just, you know... Yeah. Trying to distribute funds and do yeah, support organizations exactly. that already exist. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Totally. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. And then um, after that? After that, at about 7.45, we're talking to Tasneem Chopra, um, who's amazing. She's a cross-cultural consultant, um, recipient of the 2018 Distinguished Alumni Award from La Trobe University for her work in the diversity sector. 
Um, she's been appointed the, the anti-racism ambassador by the Australian Human Rights Commission and does a lot of work um, around the issues of leadership, diversity, intersectional discrimination and all of that. Um, and she's one of the four speakers who are doing this panel tonight that's organised by La Trobe University discussing whether racism in Australia is widespread and structural or if it's something that sort of occurs in the extremist far-right movement. Mm. So we're going to be talking about the panel, but also, I guess, general questions about structural racism and intersectional discrimination and all mm-hmm. of that. So That yeah. sounds really important. Mm. Um, and lastly, we'll chat to Guy Levanting, who's the president of Scarlet Alliance, about uh, recent plans in the Northern Territory to decriminalise sex work. Pretty significant mm. shift, but we'll be talking about, you know, is this actually going ahead and what needs to happen in terms of the other states in Australia to kind of push for similar changes. Mm -hmm. So, big show. Yeah. Very exciting. (laughs) And we'll also be playing some interesting audio in between, but we'll just have to keep listening to find out. (laughs) out. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. In December 2017, Tanya Day proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with George, who's currently eating a very sumptuous-looking toast with (laughs) peanut butter (laughs) across from me, completely vegan, of course, Um, and myself, Anya. And next up, we're going to be talking to Chris Woods, who is Crikey's morning reporter and a freelance science, political and immigration journalist and our regular segment, um, giving us some news headlines. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, and you're good. How are you two? Not too bad. It's a bit cold, but I think we're coping pretty well in the studio. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Hit us. Tell us. Straight up. Oh, terrific. <laughs> um, so I, I think one of the top stories 
for today will be there's um there was a Four Corners and slash Sydney Morning Herald investigation last night into a, some ongoing um allegations of Chinese influence in Chinese Communist Party influence into Australia. Mm. And right after that aired there was another fairly damning, fairly massive report came out from those organizations, Four Corners and Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, they basically found there's, uh, that there's a China, Chinese Communist Party aligned billionaire named Huang Jianmo. Mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and they found that he paid uh, tens of thousands of dollars to a former liberal minister, Santo Santoro, while mounting uh, this year-long kind of campaign to grant to obtain Australian citizenship. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, he received a one-on-one meeting with. Uh, then immigration minister Peter Dutton back in 2016. Uh, this was fairly massive. He didn't get a, um, he clearly didn't get, because since then, uh, Huang has been uh, banned from Australia for a, a number of um, reasons. ASIO basically thinks that uh, he's got political ties, but uh, it also did help expedite a private citizenship ceremony for his wife and two children mm. back in 2015, which, um, yeah, we're probably going to be hearing more about that throughout the day. It's very complicated, sorry to kind of throw a lot, a lot out there, but it's, um, it's fairly massive. This is a story that cost uh, former Labor Senator Sam Dastyari mm. kind of his gig back in late 2017 for mm. ice to the sky, so it's something that affects both Labor and the coalition, um, but yeah, fairly, it, it's going to be fairly big by the sounds of it. Um, another fairly dry, dry story, but will be kind of massive today and, and tomorrow, is that uh, the Labor has released Parliamentary Budget Office figures showing that the coalition's tax cuts for the very wealthy, the, the medium to high income earners, that uh, they call these phase three tax cuts that are supposed to come in around 2024. And it basically flattens uh, what everyone between 45000 and two hundred thousand dollars a year uh, is earning um, uh, what their tax cuts. Their tax rate all comes down to thirty percent. Hmm. Those haven't come in yet. They come in twenty twenty four. But if they do, these figures say that it'll cost Australia thirty billion dollars a year uh, as as long as that goes out. That's fairly massive because it um, yeah it's a big it's a big number. It's also going to be this there's this whole warring thing going on between Labor and the coalition in terms of tax cuts ahead of the election. Mm. And it's going to be Labor's big line tomorrow in that they're saying, hey, we're going to do some tax tax cuts for low-income earners, but if the coalition gets their way for people who can afford it, uh, we're going to be $30 billion worse off a year. And mm. that's, um, that's going to come out of spending, so things like healthcare and education. Mm. Uh, the next kind of top story, it's, it's a few things today. It's, a, it's going to be it's rights for coalition this is kind of going back into their turf. Um, there's all these reports coming out today about uh, Labor's electric vehicle policy, which basically um, says that there's some legitimate criticisms that Australia's grid is not primed for, you know, 50% of new electric vehicles, new vehicles being electric by 2030, mm-hmm. uh, which is Labor's, yeah, that's Labor's policy. And right now our grid isn't, possibly isn't prepared for that, according the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. There are a few other things, like a few other reports like this coming out, and the coalition are going to be hammering it ahead of the election. Uh, but all it really kind of means is that we can't, well, we can't, maybe can't support this 
amount of electric vehicles right yet, mm-hmm. there's no reason to say we can't do it in 10 years. Really, all Arena is going to say is that uh, we need to get working. We need to get transitioning to the electric vehicle revolution. Um, and that's kind of about it. That, that's going to be the major. There's also a lot of stuff happening with Adani, which it's kind of been going on for about a year now, but uh, it's threatening. The Adani coal mine in Queensland is threatening to tear the coalition apart, which mm-hmm. is interesting because it's mainly uh, been doing that for Labor the last year. Every party has basically had to tread this line of saying, uh, yeah, tread, tread this line saying that for Labor that we both support the project, but we also can't be seen to be super for it for environmental reasons. Now that has kind of merged to the coalition as well for uh, as they kind of have to pretend to take climate change a little more seriously mm. by the sounds of it. Mm. Um, that's kind of it for today. There's a lot, sorry to throw all that out there. Um, but, yeah. A lot of things happening in, in the political sphere. What about that funny story that we talked about, Chris? <laughs> well, that was kind of, I'm sorry, I kind of had to leave that for the Adani piece because that's, um, <laughs> that was more for me to say that this um, this thing has finally kind of claimed the coalition. Yeah, I okay. you know, they've, they've been loving it. But, yeah, sorry, there's, n- there's, there's mainly just politics at the moment. It's okay. going to kill me. Well, I guess that's your job. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, guys. They're all, yeah. Next yeah, week. We'll try again right next now. week. <laughs> all right. Thank Thanks you so lot. much for joining us today, Chris, and talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, mate. Bye. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Don't You Worry by Electric Fields. Thanks, Anya. So we're going to go straight to an interview now. On the line we have with us Georgia Matthews, who is the Executive Director of the channel. And Georgia joins us on the line to discuss government funding for LGBTIQA plus organisations. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. So can we start off by talking about what, what is the channel? Sure. Um, so the channel is a not-for-profit charity organisation um, that operates nationally in Australia. We are the first ever LGBTIQ plus giving circle um, in Australia, which giving circle is basically a, a collective giving vehicle. Uh, so the way that we work is we um, people join as a member, they make a monthly or annual donation, and we pull those funds and then together through a democratic decision-making process with our membership, we decide where to distribute the funds to LGBTIQ plus community projects nationally. Um, so we were started sort of off the back of the realisation that there is almost no funding going to LGBTIQ plus communities um, and recognising that, when I say funding, sort of to clarify, that's That's community funding. So whether it comes from corporates or government or philanthropic organisations such as trusts and foundations or even just individual donations, that sort of whole pot is divvied up um, by causes and focus areas um, and really um, LGBTIQ plus communities are just, they're not getting 
any of that pie. Um, and, and we kind of recognise that this is largely due to the fact that the decision makers around where that funding goes um, either don't really have an understanding of or um, exposure to um, LGBTIQ plus community needs and the opportunities that exist um, through funding that community. So the channel's model, we chose it because um, it's empowering. It, 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 it changes who the decision makers are. Um, so our membership is um, by and large LGBTIQ plus community members. Um, so there may be people that don't necessarily have huge financial capacity to give, um, but together, you know, we can give uh, grants of ten, twenty thousand dollars, and it's an empowering way for people to have a say in where funding can go. Um, and the people that are making decisions are the ones best placed to do that because they have an experience of some of the issues and challenges that we're trying to address. Um, so yeah, we've been around for three years. Um, mm. We'll probably give away about about a hundred thousand dollars this year. That's um, we've got about 150 members across the country. Um, and, yeah, we run three grant rounds a year um, uh, and sort of go through that process. We run events and, you know, bring people together um, and uh, teach them about, you know, the issues uh, and about giving well. Um, and for the first time this year, we're bringing Give Out Day to Australia, which mm. is a national day of giving to LGBTIQ plus communities. Yeah, and love to get to that in a second. I just want to come back to, I guess, just the whole concept around the channel is, is it's such a fantastic idea, given the fact that we know that they're, you know, within the queer community, there, there's a, you know, there's big difference in terms of um, people's finances, and it makes so much sense to kind of actually get people to connect and give money that can go towards other members of the queer community. It's such a fantastic concept. Yeah, and there's, you know, ancillary benefits too. I mean, when you're, if uh, each each of us, you know, maybe we have the capacity to give $500 a year at a stretch, um, but really you can't justify asking for an organisation to report back to you on what happened with that money, even though you'd really like to see the impact of your giving. But you, you can ask them to report back on um, what happened with $20,000. So it's sort of that, that really tangible outcome um, a, along with the sort of collective impact piece. Mm. And so let's talk about the report. Who was involved in putting it together? Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we've just released the report, um, uh, the funding to, to LGBTIQ plus causes in Australia report. Um, this report is the product of the first ever collaboration um, between our community's innovation lab team of data scientists. And before I went through this process, I didn't even know that that profession existed. Um, and a uh, community um, organisation partner. So um, we were really lucky to be the first um, community organisation that the team partnered up with. Um, so our community is a is a social enterprise that really um, their whole remit is um, focusing on the capacity building of the not for profit sector in Australia. So they run a whole lot of different um, businesses, uh, social businesses that people may have heard of, like Smarty Grants and Give Now and the Funding Centre. Um, and uh, they, you know, because their mission is around the capacity building of the not for profit sector, they they recognise this gap. Um, for the community sector, which is that uh, it's really being left behind when it comes to being able to um, mine and use big data effectively. Um, so corporates, you know, they, they spend millions and millions of dollars on understanding um, the data sets that they have around their customers and, um, you know, cleaning insights and um, uh, 
tailoring service offerings off the basis of those findings. But because it's such an extensive and underdeveloped uh, sort of skill, the community sector just doesn't have the capacity to hire that sort of stuff in-house. Mm. Um, so our community team is looking to um, help the community uh, sector to do that better. So the channel basically came to them saying there's never been a comprehensive snapshot of LGBTIQ plus funding in Australia um, done. So we don't really know. We know there's not a lot of money going to the sector, but we can't really say with certainty what that really looks like. But we do have the data set to mine to find out. Um, so basically the report takes data from a whole lot of different places so we could get this really good 360-degree view of LGBTIQ plus funding. Um, so that comes from Smarty Grants, which is the biggest sort of grant management software application, the Funding Centre and Give Now, so that's all our community's data. Also Perpetual, which is the largest trustee company in the country. Um, the channel, of course, the data that we've gotten over the last few years in our grant making. Um, Philanthropy Australia's foundation map. Philanthropy Australia is the peak body for philanthropic funding in Australia. And then um, finally, the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, um, which is obviously where all registered charities have to report their data. Um, plus a couple of other little research reports that have been done here and there on the LGBTIQ plus community. Mm. And we'll share the info for how to access the report online. Uh, it is a really accessible um, link in terms of it's just like really clear and really easily kind of, it's very well set out that you can kind yeah, of follow we, what the main findings really, are. Yeah, Yeah, it was a really conscious choice to use um, the format of a scroller. Um, mm. We just want this to be something, we want it to be a tool for people, uh, we want it to be something that they actually use and it doesn't just get sort of filed away on mm. the shelf. So um, it's the kind of thing that community organisations and funders alike can share to really tell that story um, and get people sort of engaged with the narrative of, of why it's important to fund LGBTIQ plus causes. Definitely. And can, can you talk us through some of the main findings? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, it's, look, the, out, it's, the, the outlook's a bit bleak. <laughs> well, sorry, I didn't say the outlook is bleak. The situation is bleak. Um, but there are, you know, there's hope. Uh, so basically, um, of the around $80 billion pool of, of grants that go out to community groups in Australia, so that's that community funding that I was talking about um, from, you know, governments and philanthropy, um, uh, basically... Um, the, the different types of funders fund the LGBTIQ plus communities at different rates. Um, they're all basically the LGBTIQ plus community receives less than 1% of grants from anyone. Um, so the federal government, um, uh, 0.07% uh, of federal government grants went to LGBTIQ plus communities um, uh, from the data set that we're looking at, um, which is from sort of 2010 to 2018. Um, and um, state and local governments fare slightly better. State government, 0.1% um, of grants went to LGBTIQ plus communities and 0.37% of grants from local governments went to LGBTIQ plus communities. Um, and then when we look at the philanthropic sector, um, instead of looking at number of grants, we have that as well at 0.22%, but um, we are also have from Philanthropy Australia's foundation that the amount... Um, so 0.4% uh, of actual funds distributed by trusts and foundations, according to foundation maps, went to LGBTIQ plus communities. So to kind of put that in perspective, it's about $1.5 million, um, and that's 
sort of this is a it's a representative sample of, of philanthropic funding sort of over the last couple of years at least. Um, but of that 1.5 million, 1.4 million, so 93 percent went to marriage equality. So um, oh, wow. when we're thinking about all of the other issues that the community is facing and um, there's sort of a whole other kettle of fish that is the fact that marriage equality, at least over the last couple of years, has completely dominated um, when it comes to um, donations. Um, so yeah. other interesting findings, um, which came from some other research that was done, um, 48% of LGBTIQ plus organisations have an annual budget of under $10,000. So that does kind of, you know, marry up with the sort of amount of grants that are being um, awarded. Um, and also, I think importantly, um, the sector is, is, is not highly formalised. So um, there's only 103 registered charities that specifically benefit LGBTIQ plus communities in Australia. So, um, you know, when we're looking at the amount of grants awarded, we also need to look at the number of organisations that are actually eligible to receive that funding. Mm. And when we look at that, it, it also kind of helps us to understand that there isn't a lot of supply, but there's also may not be that much demand going on. There's certainly demand around um, the challenges and the needs within the community, but whether or not the community has actually set itself up to be able to receive funding to address those challenges is another matter. Yeah, and Georgia, I'm conscious of the time. I know you have to be somewhere at 7.30, um, but can you just <laughs> <All right. laughs> can you quickly just run us through where to from here? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, the sector is getting more formalised. So um, there's the established... So post-marriage equality, basically, um, there was maybe a little bit of a scramble around what's next. Um, and uh, that's because there's sort of no shortage of, of, of kind of key issues that do need to be addressed. So there's still some really important policy reforms that we need to achieve in Australia. The whole narrative of marriage equality being equality is just completely false, um, as, as, you know, people in the community are, are well aware. Um, uh, you know, um, there's conversion therapy is still legal in many states. Um, uh, there's still, um, you know, discrimination in school against teachers and students is still, you know, sanctioned off the ba- on the basis of religious freedom. Um, the channel recently funded um, a program um, by 3-4 Foundation called Burden of Proof, which was around reforming the process that LGBTIQ plus people seeking asylum need to go through in order to effectively prove that they're queer um, to justify them being able to stay in Australia and how traumatic that is. There's so many things going on that still need to be worked on. Um, and so uh, really it's just telling that story. Um, out of uh, the Equality Campaign has now come an organisation called Equality Australia, which is basically advocating still for a lot of those reforms and making sure that LGBTIQ plus people have a seat at the table when those discussions mm. are being had, um, particularly in government. Um, so it's, that's an exciting development. Um, and so the channel, for the channel, um, you know, we're really interested in building the capacity of the LGBTIQ plus sector to be able to resource itself. Um, whether that be through fundraising from mainstream funding bodies um, or, um, you know, business modelling. Um, so we will be using the findings of this report um, to do some additional research and produce um, a larger publication that will be used to inform that work um, and to advocate with government, corporates, mainstream funders um, to be better at supporting LGBTQ plus communities. Um, yeah. 
so that's kind of our plan. Yeah, and and just lastly, can you tell us about the Give Out Today? Yeah, sure. So Give Out Day um, is a national day of giving to LGBTIQ plus communities. Um, the channel's really excited. It's the first time that we've brought this um, program to Australia in 2019. This um, is the first year that we'll be running it. Um, it's uh, based on the successes of the U.S. concept. So um, it happens in the U.S. They've raised something about uh, around $5 million since they've started doing it. Um, basically, uh, what it will consist of is uh, we'll be providing infrastructure, tools and resources, um, funding incentives and exposure to assist LGBTIQ plus community groups to um, get themselves their work supported. So infrastructure is will come in the form of an online platform, um, which is up and running, giveoutday.org.au. Tools and resources will be fundraising toolkits, um, collateral, um, key messages, um, donor retention plans, those sorts of things. Um, funding will come in the form of matched funding. So any, um, any donations made through the Give Out Day platform between now and the day itself, which is the 18th of April this year, we will double. Um, and uh, on top of that, of course, exposure. So the channel and, and, and the Give Out Day team are basically running a communications campaign in the lead-up to the day itself. We're trying to create a bit of a movement, and we want to run this day every year so that it starts a conversation around LGBTIQ plus giving in Australia and the fact that it's really important for members of the, of the general public to support LGBTIQ plus communities financially. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's a decentralised campaign. Community groups can participate in whatever way makes the most sense for them. They don't need to sign up to the platform to be involved. So, yeah, really would encourage both community groups to head to giveoutday.org.au to sign up and also for, um, you know, people who are passionate about LGBTIQ plus causes to give between now and the 18th of April. Thank you so much, George, and we'll share those links on our Facebook page as well as a link to the report. There's clearly so much work being done, and it would be great to continue this conversation with you over the coming months. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. See you later. Thanks, George. That was great. Next up, we have a track. It's called Wash and Set by Lake Hilly 47. Just a quick language warning. So if you have kids, please cover their ears. You are now tuned in to W-H-A-I-R Radio. Your one-stop shop for everything. Press on and beyond. Flip them bitches off your back like Remy. Flip them bitches off your back like Remy. And pro pro style. And pro pro style. And pro pro style. And pro pro style. Flip them bitches off your back like Remy. Flip them bitches off your back like Remy. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Just wanted to make a quick clarification from that interview. I accidentally... Um, called the the name of the day that is about giving to LGBTQ plus people give out today. It's actually give out day. Georgia also clarified that, but just wanted to make that clear. So we might go to an interview now with, um, it's actually that one that was done um, through Seniors Rights Service with Sally Goldner. And it's about challenges for older transgender people. Um, actually, I'm going to play an ad first. We'll be one moment.
Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Hello. Good to be with you, Alan. Start by telling me who is your community? Who do you represent? I directly represent trans and gender diverse people and bisexual people, which obviously links into the group of communities that is lesbian, gay, bi, trans and intersex or LGBTI, or happily as seem to be now done for short, rainbow communities, which um, is inclusive and I think covers, I think it's important to cover the whole range of stripes and dots in that rainbow, not just say two or three. And we're talking about issues of ageing, so how visible is that community as they age. This is a really important point that a lot of LGBTI people have felt like the system's been against them all their life. You know, so it's all very well to say, yes, it's fantastic we got marriage equality on 7 December 2017 in Australia. We're pretty much there. But you know, if that doesn't just wipe away your memories overnight. If you're someone who's been on the receiving end of electric shock therapy, you've um, you know, or conversion therapies, You've had you know, police stuff. Here we are in the 40th um, anniversary of Mardi Gras. Remember how that started? We had a, a society that was against us and police arresting people. And then we also need to honour the variations within the rainbow that it's still um, you know, very challenging for trans people at all ages to be themselves. You know, you, in most states and territories, you can't get birth certificates that reflect who you are unless you have surgery. Only two out of our eight states and territories have that right. Uh, massive rates of mental health difficulties, content warning, 48% of people have attempted suicide, those sorts of things. And then bi people feel very erased a lot and don't feel visible and are often lumped in with lesbian and gay, which distorts research on that. When bi, bi women, for example, and this hits directly at our um, topic of elder abuse, face worse levels of domestic violence than lesbian and heterosexual women. So there's a whole range of diversity and diversity that needs to be considered. So it is really, really important that people are aware of the issues that LGBTI people are probably less likely to come out in aged care. It's shifting a little in the last, where are we now, four years since training started as a result of the National LGBTI Aging and Aged Care Strategy. But we're only really, I think, just out of the starting gates. We've got a long distance to travel although the good news is I think people are warming to the issues and wanting to be more inclusive. You know, without wanting to generalise, um, if you've had a life, such as you describe, mm. um, marked by trauma in your dealings with institutions, whether they be um, police or government or big institutions, mm. what impact specifically might that have as you get older? I think... We often do an exercise, Transgender Victoria does LGBTI diversity training, we do an exercise early in our training sessions where we ask people to describe a time where they felt like the odd one out. We call it X in a sea of zeros where you're the odd one out and ask people to describe the feeling words and words come up like anxious, depressed, judged. But there's one that hits for me here and that's mistrustful. You know, you're not going to trust the system 
and if you've been had stuff from birth deaths and marriages or police or you know a school you weren't supported particularly when you were old you know for the older generations and even we'll call it the middle cohort as well didn't get a lot of support at school though we're getting a little bit of movement now you're not going to feel like you're going to be safe and so that's a really important factor so it means that you know we get people in aged care for service provision saying if only they told us such and such well we need to understand why it's a really critical factor in these communities and as I say more so for groups like trans and bi and although I'm not someone who experiences intersex variation of body at birth from ex expectations the fact that those unwanted surgeries are still largely happening I, my strong guess would be intersex people would feel mistrustful of the system as well so it's about accepting that paradigm you know we can't just change it overnight I hope I wish we could but um, we have to work with that and then say, well, how can we send signals that our service is inclusive of LGBTI people and all groups and all parts of that equally? Because mm. I can imagine just listening to you that if you, just in terms of residential aged care, all yep. sorts of issues would come up. Um, anyone listening can just imagine what those issues could be. And if the, and if the signalling from the get-go that this will be a different experience, that we're aware of, of those yep. vulnerabilities, that would make a difference. Are people, um, you, you talked about increased uh, levels of vulnerability mm. to abuse throughout life. Yeah. How does that man manifest itself in ageing? Like, are people in your community more vulnerable, do you think, to abuse? I think that when you are someone who's from you know, a range of vulnerable groups, and you know, sadly, we don't value diversity in our society, and sadly, we often don't value our elders and seniors, so for a start, you're part of the senior cohort, but then you add in other groups. If you are, um, say, one of the, the LGBTI, you've got you know, double whammy, if you like. And then, say, for someone like myself who's bi and trans, it could be triple and so on. And then going beyond my own experience, if you're a sister girl or brother boy, part of the indigenous LGBTI communities, it could go on and on. And then add in another factor, which is part of diversity and diversity. We now seem to have... Um, a large um, amount of evidence, although we, we don't have perhaps a causation factor, that trans and gender diverse people are more likely to be on the autism spectrum as part of neurodiversity. So that leads to issues of how to communicate information. So there is a lot to consider about um, making things inclusive. And some of the research that came out 10 years ago honouring those research pioneers like Dr Catherine Barrett in Victoria and Dr Joe Harrison in South Australia which found things like trans people on hormones just had them taken away by staff with, who put their own judgment on people without reason. Now, we wouldn't take away anyone's heart medication or their stroke medication or whatever it is. Why would we take away someone else's medication when they need it? Um, hormones for trans women and trans men are vital for our physical and psychological health and well-being. We need them um, for the rest of their life. Some intersex people may need them as well. So these are the sort of things that were happening, um, you know, sort of same-sex couples split apart on entry to aged care, and for that matter we've heard of heterosexual couples being separated against their will as well. So people are very, very vulnerable because we have, you know, a power imbalance and misuse of power, as I say, which starts sadly, often misused against um, seniors, but then when we add in the misuse of power on LGBTI people, really important, I could go into a particular case study um, if you'd like on yes, that. Yes, indeed. 
So yeah, really important story, and it's difficult, and I'll give a content warning, but I think it needs to be told. We had the story of an aged care service in Melbourne who had someone admitted by their adult child. The, old, the, the older person was admitted as male, and the staff got a shock the first time they went to bathe the person because the person had a female body. And as the story unfolded, the person said, look, I'm a trans woman, but unfortunately my daughter had never accepted me. And when my partner died, she said, I'll look after you, I'll admit you to aged care, but you've got to go in as a male, under your male name, dress as male, and if you don't do that, you'll never see your grandkids again. So pretty appalling stuff. And, you know, when the staff, staff only found out about this the first time they came to bathe the person when they saw, saw this body. Now, they did the right thing, huge kudos to them. They said, well, we have to act in the interests of our client. And so they said, as much as possible, we'll use your female, true female name, female pronouns, dress um, in female clothing or feminine attire, call it what you will, and except for maybe when the daughter came. Interestingly, the daughter never came and neither did the grandchildren. And they were ready to do the right thing and go to the guardianship board, part of the um, civil administrative, administrative appeals tribunal systems. Unfortunately, the client did began to progress with dementia and was not able to give a, the case they wanted. So this was a very sort of stuck situation that really couldn't be resolved. It only got to a point of being resolved as best as it could. So this is the sort of thing that people face. But, you know, that's the large one. But then there's things people won't perhaps disclose and so that can mean for people assigned male at birth, trans women and non-binary people, we still have a bit of prostate left regardless of whether we take hormones or have surgeries. Similarly, most trans men assigned female at birth needing to be male, think Chaz Bono because often they're less visible which is an issue in itself, very few can afford to have the final lower surgery so we'll still have um, a cervix and need a pap smear. So these sort of health checks can go uh, awry, don't happen as well because people don't feel safe. So these are the sort of things that can happen and we need to look at ways we can, a service can be inclusive and communicate that it is so that um, we can overcome those sorts of issues. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Sorry that we, we never would want to cut Sally off ever, but um, unfortunately that, that, section, that interview is quite long and uh, we do have a live interview coming up now, but you can listen to that, um, that interview on YouTube. We'll, we can put up a link to that on our Facebook page. And if you were just tuning in, it's Sally Goldner, who is a 3CR presenter and um, a member of Transgender Victoria, and she's talking about the challenges for older transgender people. Beautiful. Thank you, Georgie. This is Anya here. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Next up, we're going to be talking to Tasneem Chopra. Tasneem Chopra is a cross-cultural consultant and recipient of the 2018 Distinguished Alumni Award from La Trobe University for her work in the diversity sector. She has also been appointed as an anti-racism ambassador by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Through her consultancy, she speaks across the private and public sector to issues of leadership, diversity, cultural competence and intersectional discrimination. Tasnim is joining us to talk about a lot of things, including about an event that La Trobe University is putting on tonight. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tasnim. Thanks for having me, Anya. This um, this event tonight. Can you firstly start by um, telling us what it's about? 
Okay, so an event that's being held and organised by La Trobe University is part of its Ideas in Society series. Mm-hmm. But I believe in the past when they had these, these uh, events, they usually debate, but tonight's event is not a debate, it's a discussion. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's a discussion because the nature of the topic doesn't lend itself to a debate because it is so potently clear that it's, that it's not up for, uh, it's not up for debate. And the topic is that, you know, has racism in Australia entered the political mainstream or is it, is its influence found only among the far right and extreme groups and lone wolves? Mm. So I believe this topic was actually set prior to, some time prior to the Christchurch incident. Mm. After that incident, though, however, the uh, organisers, um, after a lot of, you know, obser- observation of, uh, I guess the, the tone off from community decided to modify it and have made it sort of a debate or discussion. So there, there'll be four speakers lined up mm-hmm. for 15 minutes each, I'm, which, of which I'm one, mm-hmm. to give their view about what this topic means to them in their assessment. Yeah, right. And maybe let's talk about that. So the idea that racism, but racism at its sort of ugliest, you know, for example, um, people with, um, you know, swastika tattoos making overtly obvious threats or perpetuating stereotypes, the idea that that racism only exists in a select group of the far right, uh, you know, people, how does that idea tie in or excuse the more subtle racism amongst the general public? Well, I'm sort of, Taking it from the perspective of that far-right extremism and that hateful ideology mm. has its roots in discourse that actually does occur in mainstream politics mm. and specifically within within government. And mm. we've seen behaviours, we've seen language that has been used to demonise the other, and I'll use Islamophobia as an example of that, mm-hmm. um, well, for, for, I guess for Australian Muslims, it's been an experience that we've we've weathered now for decades. Uh, but of course, we know that with our First Nations people, mm. racism, dispossession, and genocide has been a reality for over 200 years, mm. or since colonialism. So I think the roots and the essence of division and difference of exploiting minorities for political gain mm. has always been there. Sometimes it's been dressed up nicely, it's been quieter. Mm. Other times it's been more overt. I'd say in recent years it's been quite pronounced. Mm. Yeah, and how does this sort of racism that's dressed up nicely, as you say, um, and now overt, but how does that sort of racism then give rise to acceptance of certain tropes about minorities or marginalised people? And how, other than politics, how does media fit into all of this? No, I think it's, I think the two work hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, politics without media working in tandem is, is, is just, um, grandstanding. But media actually gives it oxygen. So, with regards to how does the subtlety of racism permeate, I think it's the incessant comments that are made unchecked without, um, uh, having an opportunity to be counteracted by Muslim communities mm. when horrible things are said about them. Mm. So we've had leaders in this country in the past who've described, for example, Islam as a problem, um, mm. Islam as a disease that needs to be vaccinated against. I mean, Pauline Hanson, the One Nation, has spoken of the Muslim ban um, to curb migration even by, by others. Uh, we've had investigations into halal, uh, banning the burqa, uh, Shutting down schools, um, that Muslims don't, can, 
Muslims and Muslim ideology is not compatible with an Australian way of life. Mm. That Australian Muslim leaders need to do more mm. to condemn terrorism because they're not doing enough. That they need to fit in, their values don't align with Australian values, whatever those specifically are. So there's always been this othering and demonising of the community mm. to a point where people who don't have, who have not had an opportunity to even meet a Muslim or to know otherwise, uh, adopt those views and have those views. And then, and obviously the, the manifestation of those views in, to their worst, to their most violent degree is to actually then act on them in an aggressive way. Mm. And we have seen a spike in Islamophobia attacks every time there has been, in, or historically, um, prior to an election. Uh, across Australia or in, in other countries prior to significant events where minorities and Muslims in particular are used to actually gain an outcome. Mm. So the spike in Islamophobia in the UK went up something like 400% prior uh, mm. post-Brexit mm. in the immediate, both before it and in the immediate aftermath. And same during Trump's election. In the, in the weeks leading to his election where Trump was actually giving speeches, they said Islamophobia acts went up 200 and something percent mm, mm. just in that time. So there is a correlation between words that are spoken, mm-hmm. messages that are understood, and actions that are taken. There is a culpability because when leadership endorses or sets forth views which are pretty hostile and divisive, they're giving legitimacy to hate speech. Mm. It's, it's unequivocal. They have positions of power. They have positions of influence. They have platforms that ordinary people do not have access to and do not have access then to counteract them. Mm. So what you're having is this open slather, uh, the privilege to be able to, to say what they like, when they like, about whom they like, with no consequence, except the consequences are felt on the ground for a community who continue to be on the brunt end of hostility. Mm. And as we've seen in Christchurch, we've seen the worst excesses of what hate leads to. Yeah, yeah. And can you talk to us about... Um, what structural racism mean? What what does that term mean, firstly? And what are the consequences of that? Well, I think the experience of indigenous communities in this country mm. um, are probably the greatest living example of what structural racism can, can, can affect. Mm-hmm. So where you have centuries of intergenerational trauma and poverty that are basically maintained because of the system and the status quo, where the opportunity to aspire to do to greater employment opportunities, better housing, better mm-hmm. health, um, better education are all thwarted because of the way systems are set up. And so, for me, for me, structural racism is the continuation and the propagation of, of that of that inequality mm-hmm. by disallowing people the opportunity to rise up to stand up, to have equal access to resources and have equal platforms, have equal platforms where they can actually then speak speak for themselves and, and answer the call. Uh, something as um, problematic as, I think, Pauline, and again, Pauline, Pauline Hanson, the One Nation Party, mm. her ability to occupy a primetime spot on a, car, a commercial television morning show mm-hmm. on a regular basis to wear her views, and, I mean, ironically, to wear her views many times about the fact that she has no platform to air her views on a regular basis Mm. is a very direct example of what privilege is that enables the racism that she spouts on on such a continued basis um, that it becomes really disruptive and dangerous. Mm. Um, 
this is a form of racism because there is, there's no doubt the words that she is saying are hurtful, mm. divisive, um, and, and damaging to the community that she's talking about. But she's just given platform again and again. Mm. Yeah, the unfettered discretion to say what you want without, without being challenged. Full impunity. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, you've talked a little bit about this and the media release for the panel event tonight also states that tonight's discussion will be about whether Australia has transcended the racist dimension of our history. And given that sort of, you know, colonial carceral racist history of this country and, like you said, the ongoing structural and racial violence perpetuated against First Nations people today, how important is it to centre First Imp- First Nations people's voices in discussions about racism and white supremacy? Well, I think it's integral. Mm. And I think you can't have an honest and meaningful discussion about rectifying the imbalance without centering that first. Mm. Because they are the longest uh, longest recipients of this hate and, and, and the colonial um, outrage and abuse over any other community in this country. And that has not been rectified. Mm. That hasn't been seen. Recognition has not been given. And the the, the markers of the difference in the outcomes that they experience from health, education, longevity, um, all of that, all of that is an example of the fact that there is there's so much reparation to be done and so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's central, and I know I'm, I'm thrilled that Chelsea Bond is actually one of the speakers mm-hmm. on the panel tonight. Mm-hmm. I expect that will be one of the main, that will be the main area that she's addressing. Yeah, beautiful. It sounds like a really, really interesting event and I'm really looking forward to listening to you speak and, and all the other three great um, panellists as well. It's very timely. Yeah, it is very timely. And it's really interesting that it was organised before what happened at Christchurch, but now it's just become so much more you know, important and topical as well. Um, well, I think it's it's actually enabling the very issue that we talk about missing and that is a platform. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the embodiment of that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tasneem, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you tonight. Thanks a lot, Anya. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser.
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with George and Anya. We just listened to the incredible Tasnim Chopra talking about a panel event that's happening tonight. Um, the title of the panel is um, Has Racism in Contemporary Australia Entered the Political Mainstream or Is Its Influence Found Only Among the Far-Right Extremist Groups and Lone Woods? Very, very cool panellists. There are four of them. Um, Professor um, Tim Sudpomasan, there's Tasnim Chopra, um, Tom Switzer, director of the uh, conservative think tank, the Centre for Independent Studies, and former well-respected opinion editor at The Australian, and associate professor Chelsea Bond, um, who's a distinguished academic who has worked in Indigenous health promotion, culture, identity, and community development. It's happening tonight, 6.15 to 8 p.m. at the State Library. Um, and there's also a live stream link, which we will post on Facebook if you can't attend for whatever reason, and you can watch it. It sounds really, really cool. That's awesome. It's really cool that events are doing that a lot now. The yeah, streaming, the accessibility. The accessibility. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And also, I really, I thought it was really cool what Tasneem said about how it's, it's, not, it's a discussion, not a debate. Absolutely. Yeah. That you don't need, doesn't need to be this like fierce. Like, there's only two sides, and we're going to just like be really kind of full on about it. It's just let's actually just like unpack it and recognize the mm. complexities. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I'm still very blown away by the fact that the event was organised prior to what happened mm. at Christchurch, and now it's just, you know, all all the more urgent. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So we're going to play a track now. It's from one of my favourite artists at the moment. Uh, her name's Tiana Kazi, and this track is called George's Track. <laughs> That track was by is by Tiana Kazi. It's called George's Track. Uh, she's just got a new EP out. It's awesome. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're actually going to jump back into the uh, little uh, pre the recording that we were playing before from Sally Goldner because we realised that we'd actually love to hear the rest of that and we've got time for it, which is cool. So if you're just tuning in, um, Sally is, uh, it was a little, it's actually a YouTube video that was made through Seniors Rights Victoria and it's about challenges for older trans folks. So without the additional conversation you have to have of let's talk about whether or not you need that despite how you're presenting to the world. Well, totally. And then there's other issues. And this happened to one of my um, close um, colleagues who's a trans man. Now, this happened at a leading, um, and it is a very good clinic in terms of inclusive LGBTI services in Melbourne, but to do the pap smear um, needed a a long appointment. And unfortunately, when up at the counter, someone um, just said, well, what do you need it for? Now, that sort of privacy issue is critical 
for older LGBTI people. So what does he, you know, he's left in a bind. Does he sort of put on a bit of swag and go, it's a pap smear or something, or does he write it down? Unfortunately, the clinic had had some issues with people misusing and longer appointments, that's why they are. So the need for privacy and inclusivity is important and that could lead to, an, well, another triggering story, not so much in aged care but for an older person who is in a public hospital if we want to do that one as well. Mm-hmm, sure. Again, massive content warning. Um, so we had an older trans man who was dealing with generalist health issues, in this case lung cancer, and was in a high-intensive high care unit. And unfortunately, there's little separation to the bed um, next to him. Now, he, the staff were quite good and he was happy to talk about it and they needed to bathe him. Unfortunately, the people, visitors to the person in the next um, bed overheard and saw the fact that this person's body was different. And this is where we get again to a massive content warning. They, After the nurse had left, they popped their head over the wall and said, we don't think people like you should be treated in public hospitals. We're coming back with an axe. The patient reported this to the nurse, only to be told, oh, you're just hallucinating, dear, it's your medication. They did come back with an axe and they got within three metres of this person and also his carer, who's another trans man, and if it wasn't for one very petite nurse standing up to two very big people and managing to get security on hand, we shudder to think what would have happened. The problem is because the offenders didn't actually get to the trans people, it's not going to be recorded as a hate crime and they didn't actually get to them. Sure, they've been charged with you know, having an axe and threatening the nurse, but that's where these things get erased. So this is where we need to make sure privacy and confidentiality are critical, obviously for lots of people, but certainly LGBTI people will feel they need to be safe to disclose things about body identity and um, expression. So for you, awareness uh, of this community and some deep thinking about what their needs might be before situations arise is critical to developing any, any strategy for dealing with ageing. Absolutely. So what can we do? One of the other things that happens when you're the odd one out is you can become, we use the word, hypervigilant, always on the lookout, which can be a negative thing, but when a service is inclusive, our radar will zero in and pick up that a service is inclusive. So, yes, there needs to be comprehensive training, don't just do a couple of things, but things you can do. Change forms so that it's got gender, space and optional, not male, female, circle one. Sure, 90% of the population will just you know, put M or F and won't think or go, go, go why, are you, why have you got it that way? You're saving printer ink or something. For us, we'll go, aha, this service has done some training. If something does, if there's a chance of prevention, but even if something goes wrong, I know there's someone who will listen if I can complain. Also, having forms that say emergency contact rather than next of kin, which covers more than just husband, wife, separated, divorced, and doesn't just cover partners in the case of LGBTI. It could be Farmer Bob in the country whose best contact is Farmer John or Ethel whose next door neighbour is Myrtle or Army Buddy. That's going to be more inclusive. It also helps on the autism spectrum thing because if you, some autistic people take things literally and if you say next of kin and they've got no one, they'll just go, no one. But if they say it's emergency contact, um, and this is my friend who was in the hospital, he'll say, well, that's him over there. <laughs> and it will communicate. So little things like that, um, you know, having rainbow lapels or lanyards for staff who have done some training and are feeling comfortable working with LGBTI people, really important, just sending those little signals, honouring days like May 17th, International Day Against 
homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, or coming up on March 31st is a particular day. Um, in, in Trans Day of Visibility, which is a very positive day for us, we call it Trans Awesomeness Day. So having rainbow cake, whatever, some people just munch the cake, but others will go, oh, they're thinking about us. It's, it might, they might not come out, they mightn't just tell you anything, but the contentment will be there. And we have seen these things work in services that are further down the track, and that can just give people some dignity. And I will finish with a positive story of what happens when we're inclusive and respectful. And this was a service who knew about contacting other, um, contacting LGBTI services, and we'd recommend the QLife network, um, which covers services like Switchboard that have databases. They had an older gay man come out in their service, and they took him to a group in Victoria with the delightful name, the Boilers Society. It's been running for 60 years for gay and bisexual men, and it was just social, but it gets better. He met someone. And the worker who was telling me this story said, we don't recognise our client anymore. He walks so much taller now and I'm sitting there going, because it just made a difference. And really, when we ask someone, what can we do for you? We can make life better for all our seniors, including LGBTI. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your passion and your information and your advocacy. So. Pleasure, Ellen, and thank you. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There'll be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, IFFAustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know, it's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I want to be a better, better man, yeah. Because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. I wait for young ones come off the truck there the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene so it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like yeah. They're starting to look up to me so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an 
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We've got Gala Vanting on the line, who is the president of Scarlet Alliance, and she joins us to discuss the Northern Territory's plans to decriminalise sex work and where basically the other states are at in terms of sex work laws. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Gala. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So perhaps we could, before we get to talking about the Northern Territory and, and plans to decriminalise sex work there, perhaps you could give us a bit of an understanding in terms of, and I guess the laws around sex work are quite complex, but what sex workers and sex worker organisations are really pushing for and then what this means in the context of these plans. Sure. Um, so sex workers in every state territory in Australia um, are pushing for the decriminalisation of sex work, and that's when we say that, we mean the full decriminalisation, um, which is the uh, sort of the repeal of any um, law that pertains to sex work specifically. Um, so we we are opposed to singling out sex work and sex workers, um, you know, in any sort of legal code. Right, and there's quite a difference currently in terms of where the states are at around sex work laws. Yes, there's. Yeah, we've got quite a. I feel like we have a a wide array in Australia and we're kind of like representing a whole bunch of different models um, for how how to regulate sex work. Mm. And so what is basically going on in the Northern Territory at the moment? Um, So the Northern Territory have been working, um, so sex workers there have been working for about two and a half years now um, with the anti-government um, to start to push for full decriminalization of sex work um, in the NT. Um, and look, I mean, this is, this is something that there are active campaigns, uh, very active campaigns in three states uh, and territories in Australia at the moment. And all of these are things that, that sort of, uh, you know, they take a lot of groundwork um, and, and a lot of education, both of government and the, the general public. So they've been working hard on that for a while. And what's happened is that um, the anti-government has released a discussion paper with a recommendation um, to decriminalise sex work in the Northern Territory. Um, but the discussion paper itself actually describes a licensing model. Um, so I guess just to give you like a really basic um, framework for this, there, there are three uh, ways that, that we describe sex work being legislated. One is criminalization, in which all sex work is a criminal act. Um, the next is, is legalization or um, licensing is, is how we refer to it, um, in which uh, some types of sex work are legal, um, but usually in these models it's, it's most sex work that falls outside of the law. Um, and then you have decriminalization, which removes um, any any sort of criminal law regarding sex work and, and relies on things like labor law, migration law, um, planning and local council regulations, everything else that um, that any other business would be subject to. Right. And so in in Victoria, is it a, it's a licensing situation here? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very, I mean, Victoria is, it, uh, unfortunately, um, that, that system is really not working in Victoria. Um, but what that, I guess, you know, what that does provide is a, a solid example of the ways in which licensing fails um, because it creates a, a sort of two-tiered system in which, um, you know, y- yes, you can work legally, but the barriers to working legally um, often 
often also preclude your safety as a sex worker. Um, and so sex workers are, are forced to choose between um, working in a way that is self-determined and, and where they feel safer or working in a, in a way that's legal. Mm. And these laws are clearly not understanding what it's like for sex workers to work under these conditions and what the implications are in terms of their day-to-day work. Exactly. Or if they do um, understand them, um, or if they are, you know, if if they if sex workers have expressed um, the ways in which these laws are damaging for them, um, you, you know, they're ignored. Mm-hmm. Or uh, you know, the the perceived benefits of the licensing um, in 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 the government's viewpoint outweigh the the potential benefits of decriminalizing sex work. And look, the evidence is really um, the, the evidence is really in for decriminalization. And so, not only um, are governments who are using criminalization or licensing models um, ignoring sex workers, they're also ignoring the growing body of evidence that suggests that uh, through any lens through which you look at sex work, decriminalization provides the best outcome. Mm. And so why do you think that we are seeing these shifts in the Northern Territory? Uh, I, I think we're seeing them because uh, sex workers in the NT are, have been uh, and still are working really hard um, to, to lobby the Attorney General um, and other sectors of government to make this happen. And they're also, you know, I guess like decriminalization is, is one step towards creating um, just better lives in general for sex workers, but we also need things like anti-discrimination protections um, and we need, uh, you know, things that, that sort of, uh, things that, that, that keep us from having to do things like mandatory testing or, you know, medical surveillance, registering us on, on police registers or business licensing registers, as is in, in the case in, uh, in Victoria. Mm, and it seems pretty, uh, pretty clear that those sorts of changes are necessary for safety and just, yeah, just general well-being for sex workers. But, you know, in the, in yeah. the example of the yeah. police kind of being in control or um, monitoring sex work stuff, like it just seems like a really harmful process. Yes, exactly. And it's also it's it's kind of absurd and arcane to imagine um, the police as the primary regulators of an industry. You know, that's something that um, that labor rights organizations eradicated uh, in in most other industries uh, you know hundreds of years ago so mm. I feel like uh, it's it's we're just really far behind yeah. in how we perceive sex work um, and and you know for, for us uh, for the Scarlet Alliance sex work is work and that's what it is and that's how we talk about it yeah. uh, and anything else that you layer on top of that becomes you know it becomes a value question or an ethics question um, and that's not the stance from which something that is you know primarily a labor and public health uh, issue mm. you know, that's, that's not the way to do that yeah and clearly there's some values there that need to be interrogated and challenged and in the in yeah. the case of the northern territory so it sounds like the it, it it's most likely going ahead or can you kind of just clarify um, exactly where that's at Sure. Um, so the process uh, for in, in this situation in the NT is that um, the discussion paper was released alongside a survey. Um, so the NT are welcoming um, anybody, any member of the community, to have their say um, about the proposed changes to the to the legislation. And um, the so it, you know, it's, I guess like it's not a done deal. Um, 
although it, you know, it's definitely being talked about as um, we will decriminalize sex work in the NT, but the problem is, you know, their version of decriminalization is actually licensing. And so this is really a key moment for the community uh, to have impact. Um, so what Scarlet Alliance and Swap NT have done is they've collaborated on um, an information kit so that people can better understand um, the types of issues that uh, that come up in the questions um, and how to respond to those with sex workers kind of being centralized in, in your responses. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's important that uh, it, it be really clearly said to the NT government that what they're describing in the paper is not decriminalization. Um, and that anything short of full decriminalization is unacceptable to anti-sex workers and to the community in which they live. Um, and so this is, you know, I guess uh, we're doing our best to educate um, and collaborate with community and sex workers and, and our allies and our allied stakeholders uh, to make sure that this, this information gets widely distributed. Um, so that's available on our website for anybody who wants to um, anybody who wants to have a say, um, and the inquiry, I guess it's not an inquiry, it's a consultation, I suppose, um, that's open in the NT until the 30th of April. So we've got about a, you know, a little under a month to get that together. Mm, that's really, yeah, that seems really important considering the complexity and, and as you've outlined, the fact that a lot of people might not quite understand the, those distinctions. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that, you know, the complexity of sex work legislation in Australia makes it so that, um, you know, it's not just sex workers who have a hard time, um, you know, crossing a border into another state and suddenly everything that they used to do to stay safe is now illegal. Um, but, it, you know, it also kind of it, it also creates a lot of public confusion um, and a lot of uh, incorrect definitions. And, um, you know, I think it's what the what the NT has done in the discussion paper um, is really evidence of how how very complex uh, and confusing this can be. Mm. Uh, and so it's, you know, this is up to sex workers to, to set the record straight on that. And we're sort of running out of time, but just uh, for my last question, do you think that this is sort of going to build momentum and what changes do you think we'll see, say, in, in the context of Victoria? Hmm. Um, look, I, I think that uh, this sort of, the push towards decriminalization in a number of states and territories in Australia is just going to build that body of evidence um, and, and also the general public sentiment around decriminalization as best practice. Um, Victoria is, uh, is it, you know, <laughs> Victoria would really benefit from law reform, um, but that law reform has to be driven by sex workers themselves um, because we know best what, uh, what works for us. Um, and so I feel like that's, you know, that's an important place for Victoria to start. And the Vixen Collective, which mm. is the peer um, organization in Victoria, are working for that, absolutely. Um, and I, I can only hope that Victoria will, um, will take a, a page out of the playbooks of, of other states and territories who are moving in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll be following this really closely and thank you so much for your time this morning and clarifying a lot of these issues around sex work legislation. Pleasure. If people want to find the info kit or any more information about us, we're scarletalliance.org.au. Thanks so much, Gar. I'll um, put that link up on our Facebook page as well. Have a nice day. Thanks Brilliant. for your time. Thank you so much.
March 16, the Sintani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains, also poor waste management polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara, a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chaforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We've got about two minutes left, so we thought we'll come back and quickly thank our guests before Accent of Women comes up next. Um, thank you to... To George Matthews from the channel. Tasnim Chopra. And Gala Vanting from Scarlet Alliance. And we'll put up all of the links that we discussed on today's show on our Facebook page, including information for Give Out Day, which mm-hmm. is coming up on the 18th of April. And the panel event that's organised by La Trobe Uni that's happening tonight. We'll also post a live stream if you can't attend in person. Awesome. And we'll see you next week.